This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. And a very good morning to everyone. It's always a joy and privilege to gather with the people next to you. It's a privilege we get to enjoy, but never take for granted. So today as we open up God's Word, can I invite us to first ask God to help us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the week that has passed. You have known what each of us have gone through. Some of us had a smooth week. Some of us had difficult days. Father, as we come here, Father, we pray that you will help us to engage with your word because your word is not just stories of old, but it's the way, it's the truth, it's the life that will draw us from death and hopelessness to hope and eternal life. So, Father, we pray you help us to hear your word and engage with it, and I pray, God, that you help me to explain your word clearly. In Jesus' name and for His glory alone. Amen. One after another, the man and the woman walked down the pool stairs to be baptized. The pastor prays shortly and then baptizes them, gently pushing them backwards under water. And as each believer emerges to the sound of loud applause and warm embrace, as they step out of the pool, one by one, until all 16 baptisms finished, and the group erupts in worship. They sang, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Well, the song is familiar to Christians around the world, but in Syria, the words take a new meaning. In this Middle Eastern country, their decision to follow Jesus comes with great cost. If or when their conversion is discovered, these new believers could lose their family, friends, their jobs, even their lives. Well, I've just read for us a part of an amazing account just posted last month on Open Doors. As the writer puts it, these 16 Syrians made a radical choice. Perhaps we remember just three or four years ago, even on this pulpit, we have heard again and again how the church of Syria was all but dead. I remember preaching about it three years ago. Back then, we also learned what modern days martyrs look like. There were countless who were given ultimatum, your faith or your life. Many chose faith over life. Now, dear friends, how do Christians hold on to our faith when the cold-piercing pressure of the world presses sharply against our chest? We may or may not face what our Syrian brothers and sisters face, but perhaps we will face our own kind of pressures. at, uh, At some point, we may be challenged to dilute our gospel or just to be silent at our workplace perhaps to assimilate our gospel under the banner of the non-judgmental love and to redefine marriages. Or perhaps it is to remove the offense of the gospel by agreeing that all religions are basically the same. Or perhaps to live a compromised and a confused life of 
worshipping God on Sunday but worshipping the world on Monday to Friday. Now how can Christians, how can we hold on to our faith against the tsunami pressure to surrender to the influence of our world? Now dear friends, welcome back to the book of Isaiah. It seems like a really long time, six weeks ago, that we were still at the book of Isaiah and now we are back. So let me give us a bit of a refresher. We've learned previously that the book of Isaiah is a book that captures the vision of the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. The book of Isaiah was written in a time of great pressure on God's people. It is a time that is written when God's people are called to remain firm in their faith even as they find themselves being smashed around by threats of the world and being tempted to follow the kings of their world. We learned a couple of weeks back that Isaiah really is a book about the imminent judgment, but also the merciful rescue that God is offering to us. Now right now, today, we are still in the first big section of Isaiah. The first big section moves from chapter 1 to chapter 39. What we need to remember at this point is that the two Judean kings that we need to remember, the first one is called King Ahaz. He was a faithless king, which uh, we looked at at chapter 6 to 12. Now, when King Ahaz encountered a mighty enemy, God said to him, Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. To which Ahaz replied, and I will not stand on it. The second king, we will come to it in weeks to come. At chapter 36 to 39, King Ahaz, he's the son of, uh, King Hezekiah, he's the son of King Ahaz. At that point, he will come to face an enemy much greater than his own dad. The challenge will be on him, and he will be given an ultimatum. Your faith or your life? How King Ahaz will respond to the power of the world would totally depend on what he understands who God is. And so this few weeks, as we take a journey into the chapters that are sandwiched between King Ahaz and King Hezekiah, we are meant to recognize who God is, that He is the ultimate God who has the absolute power to judge His enemies, but also provide rescue for God's people. So as we restart our journey into Isaiah, can I invite you to open up your Bible and keep it open to Isaiah chapter 13. And I'll read from verse 1 onwards. Isaiah 13, verse 1. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of, of the nobles. I've commanded those I prepared for battle. I've summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. And verse 4, it says, The Lord Almighty is mastering an army for war. Now, chapter 13 to 23 are going to be filled with 10 oracles of God's judgment and God's rescue. But right now in chapter 13, Isaiah begins with Babylon. Well, as we look at the whole ten oracles, we may ask this question, 
Why did he choose Babylon? It may not be that obvious when we first look at today's passage, but it will come eventually if we read later on to chapter 39, because when we reach 39 in weeks to come, we'll recognize that Judah's greatest enemy was never the ancient Syria that that King Ahaz was afraid of. Judah's greatest enemy was also not Assyria that King Hezekiah would have to face. By 39, we realize that Judah's greatest army, uh, enemy is actually the great Babylon. In the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon, God's people will fall. That's about 80 to 100 years after this was written, well after Isaiah is dead. So now as you look at Isaiah 13, it's quite a startling chapter because God, through the prophet Isaiah, has already declared into the future of about 100 years later that Judah's greatest enemy is Babylon. But nevertheless, God at the appointed time will bring judgment to Babylon. So this is what God said to Isaiah. Listen to verse 2. God said, Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them. Now Isaiah, cry aloud, Isaiah. Raise God's divine banner at the hilltop. Raise God's banner. Know that God will summon mighty warriors from far away to bring judgment on the Babylon that will conquer you. So great will this army that the battle cries could be heard on the mountains. It's uproar like nations gathering together. These warriors from far away will be God's weapon to bring God's wrath upon his enemies identified as Babylon. Now, of course, Babylon in Isaiah's time is a real historical nation. It manifests all of human's achievement, human pride, human glory, human arrogance. If you just search a little bit in your Google and search for archaeologists, uh, historians writing about um, Babylon, you will find countless things You'll hear about this Babylon king called King Nebuchadnezzar, the second who reigned from 605 BC to 562 BC. If you just have a look, he is actually one of the greatest kings of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He, he was the architect that restored Babylon to his greatness. He was said to be the one that built the hanging garden of Babylon. In fact, the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, even today, apparently spreads over 2,000 acres of the uh, Middle East. Uh, It is one of the largest archaeological sites around. Babylon is historically humanity's greatest pride, and it has one of the greatest kings. But the Bible also records that God was not pleased with Babylon, nor was he pleased with his king. So I want to read to you another prophet that was about decades after Isaiah. His name is called Daniel. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 4. The prophet Daniel was giving Nebuchadnezzar this warning. Daniel 4, it says, Daniel says, Your majesty, please be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. 
it goes on in verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the uh, royal palace of Babylon, he looked at him and he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice from heaven came. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. If you have a chance this week, during one of the evenings, Daniel 4 will be a great read, just to get a feel of what Babylon was like uh, when Judah was under captivity. But as we look at Isaiah 13 today, what we are meant to recognize is that although Babylon was a real historical nation, it is also a very real fitting symbol of humans' pride, achievement, glory, and refusal to acknowledge God. Take a look with me at that same chapter, chapter 13, verse 11. Verse 11. That God will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. And then it says, God will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And so the judgment of Babylon is layered right here in Isaiah 13 with God's judgment of the world as well. In fact, we can easily trace the pride and the arrogance of Babylon or humanity right to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 11. Now, after the great flood, the people wanted to build a great tower that reaches heavens to make a name for themselves. That tower was called the Tower of Babel. Or if you look at your Bible's reference footnotes, the Tower of Babylon. We have a chance to look at it in greater details if you're in a Bible study. But what we are meant to notice in Isaiah 13 is this Babylon is used synonymously together with the physical Babylon of Judah's time and Babylon as in the whole world, in all generations. It's layered with judgment for the physical nation in Judah's time and also the final judgment that comes to us. When the Bible says, the day of the Lord comes. So look at verse 6 and 9 with me. It's not an easy passage, so I'm, I'm guiding us along. Look at verse 6 to 8 again. It says this, Will, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. Now what Isaiah is saying in this chapter, the day of the Lord's judgment will be a day of terror for anyone who is God's enemy. Of the past, of the present, of the future. On the day of the Lord, the great Babylon, how great it is, will start to tremble in fear. For the outpouring of God's judgment will overflow and there will be no mercy. Verse 9 will have described that sinners within the land 
or the earth will be destroyed. And so great was God's judgment that even verse 10 says, the stars of heavens, the stars of heavens, their constellation, will not show light. The rising sun will become darkened. The moon will not give its light. Now the judgment of God upon Babylon will be so terrible, even the sky will tremble and will refuse to show any signs of life. In fact, this very verse uh, is being quoted by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24. But at Matthew 24, when he quotes this verse 10, it's referring not just to a physical Babylon, but it's referring to the judgment to the whole world, the world that will crucify him. And then, in Matthew 24, it says, it's not just God who is going to judge, but it's not just warriors from far away. In Matthew 24, it will say that the warrior himself comes not from distant land, it comes from heaven down with the armies of heaven to bring judgment on the world. So the dreadful day of the Lord is a day we will, in fact, here verse 12 says, we'll no longer be concerned with overpopulation in our world. That's what we are worried about. We wouldn't be because verse 12 tells us our concern will be the extinction of humanity. People will be scarcer than gold. Now I remember watching this movie called 2012. Anybody has watched that before? 2012. It's the apocalypse movie. Uh, I put some pictures there to help you. It depicts the world was coming to an end in 2012. Well, thankfully we are still here. His story was this, that the earth crust started to shift. Fire burst out. Of the earth, tsunami sweeps from the oceans. The Empire State Building was like this broken Lego. The Golden Bridge collapsed. Hawaii was like a pool of volcanoes. The White House was swallowed by tsunami. The presidents and the commoners, the elderly, the children, the buildings, the cruise ships, they were all destroyed. Even the Himalayas mountain was just seen as this little mountain hill amidst the water. So great was the destruction that it was depicting that the magnitude was beyond human capability. But even as you look at this picture that humans try to describe, the Bible tells us that is a vain attempt to describe the day of the Lord. Verse 11 says this, I, God, will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sin. God says in verse 13, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place as the wrath at the wrath of the Lord Almighty, in the day of His burning anger. What it can show in this movie was the burning of the earth. But God says we will see the burning of God. Now on the day of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord Almighty will not be stopped by any human efforts. It will not just be one nation, but the whole world. It's not just, and there's no Babylon, there's no Babylon, there's no nations who can put a stop to the wrath of God on the day itself. No, friends, what we read about Babylon here speaks as loudly to the people of Judah back then as it is to you and me comfortably in this icon room because God will come and punish our world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. Now, we can take pride in our human achievements and all our technologies, our AIs, our unity to make the world a better place. But nothing will save us when the wrath of God comes. No AI, no technology, nothing will save us when God comes to judge the wicked. Now, as we hear this, it sounds a bit foreign. What is wicked? No, wicked here is not talking about serious offenders 
who have done terrible things and the law says they are wicked. And in fact, we'll feel that a bit outrageous if we call our loved ones wicked or someone call you wicked. You sound outrageous, but listen to this. The wicked here has got nothing to do with that. The wicked here goes right into the heart. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babylon and all its future manifestation. The wicked here points to everyone who chooses to align with the world and turns away from God. Wicked here points to everyone who chooses to align with the world rather than with God. People who want to build their own tower to reach heaven and so reject God as God. Those who want to redesign their own God so that it fits what they like and refuse the God that demands repentance and coming to Him. No, Isaiah 13 speaks loudly to us because God's judgment of Babylon, of our world, is not over yet. It is still brewing. No, we're read in history, we will continue to hear about political or social powers that attempt to silence the gospel or, or God, to enslave or destroy those who trust in Him, but they would not succeed. Isaiah 13 tells us, instead, those who face whose face are against God, they will face the wrath of God crashing onto them. Verse 14 paints it this way. Let me read to you. It's a bit poetic. Look at verse 14. It says, Like a hunted gazelle, it's like antelope, like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Now someone helpfully explains what this means. Um, look at this for a moment. On one hand, a gazelle or an antelope it becomes endangered when humans pay attention to it with a rifle to hunt it down. Meanwhile, a sheep is endangered if people turn away from it and there's no shepherd. So if you just have these two pictures um, sitting on your mind a little bit, you can imagine, so like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep without a shepherd, those who are hunted by God, those who do not have God as their shepherd, they are helpless. They are hopeless. They have everything to run away from and nothing to run towards. That is the picture of those who are God's enemies. They have everything to run from, but there's no way, nowhere for them to run to. Those who are God's enemies, verse 13 says they have no protectors, verse 14 says there's no escape, verse 15 says there's no mercy when the judgment finally arrives. In fact, in 539 BC, Judah will witness the fall of the great Babylon, which now, if you ever go and visit the site, it is just a site. Verse 17 says this, See, I will stir up against them the meats, who do not care for silver and do not delight in gold. Verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and the glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now in 539 BC, the Babylon did fall under the powers of the Medes, the Persians, under the power of King Cyrus historically. The world did see the historical fall of that great Babylon nation. It was historical. But scripture here reveals 
behind the curtain, the power that caused it to fall was from God. God's wrath was unleashed on that nation. The God who judged Babylon was the same God who judged the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same God who brings the same judgment. And this vivid description of God's judgment of Babylon actually is a warning for you and for me because that same God is going to, is going to judge, to give a greater judgment to the Babylon of our world. The spirit of Babylon is found in every corner of our world right now. Every corner that calls out in pride and haughtiness towards God. Babylon's spirit in this world calls in haughtiness against God. But at the same time, it has a seductive voice that calls the world to come and join hands in this passion of love without judgment, to build a name for ourselves, to reach the summit of human achievement, that we can reach higher and higher and higher as human beings, and no doubt for our own glory. The book of Revelation brings a very sober look at this greater Babylon. And that's the passage we read just now. But let me just read it a little bit for us again, to bring it closer to heart that is from the New Testament. Revelation 18 verse 2 says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit. In verse 3 it says, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Verse 4, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven. God has remembered her crimes. That's thousands of years after Isaiah's words, and is close to us. Now what Babylon of our world is building right now is not a tower that reaches to heaven with our achievement. What the Babel, a Babylon of our world right now is piling up a tower made of sins that are obvious before God's eyes. Dear friends, the fulfillment of Babylon's fall prophesied in Isaiah 13. It has already happened long ago. But what it does is only to affirm and point to the fall of a much greater Babylon that is yet to come. The pride and defiance of humanity that appeared since Genesis 11 and all who drinks from her cup and shares her rebellion against God will not escape. The difference, Isaiah 13 can be quite a heavy chapter and you can be glad we are not going to go through all 10 oracles. But the question for us is, will we recognize that God is the ultimate king amidst the kings of our world? Or are we tempted like King Ahaz to lean on political powers and bow down to them? Isaiah 13 is actually a passage or a chapter of faith building, of fear and warnings for those who are not in it. Because if we cannot see God as the ultimate king, as the Bible puts it, we will not stand when the power and the forces of Babylon comes to you and to me. On a daily basis, on any given day, the Babylon world may call us to share, come and share in her non-offensive slogan of non-judgmental love, relationship, marriage, life. Let's not be judgmental to each other. 
Babylon's voice may cause us to invest our lives to build a bigger name, a greater name of more achievements for ourselves, or to fear her political powers to give up our faith, or social pressures for us to just be a bit more quiet about God and His judgment. Now, when the Babylon of the world raises her threats, will we continue in BTPC to faithfully teach God's words against the culture even? Or will we soften the words of God here in this pulpit, back at our home, with our children, at our workplace? Will we trust God's word not only in good times, but also stand firm when it's tough? Will we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Will we sing that? Can we sing that? It's depending on what we understand who God is. Now Isaiah 13, as with all the other passages that we read about Babel or Babylon, today are meant to help us or actually draw our eyes to look up and see that God is always in control. And God says what will happen, He will complete. What you and I need to do is to see beyond the storms that comes and the seduction of Babylon that comes on a daily basis. And to look and see that God is ultimate. His words have been given. It is happening as we move along. That we stay faithful as a church when we profess. Faithful as parents, as employees, as husbands, as wives, as children. To see that God is the ultimate king who brings judgment. But also he will show compassion to those who lean on him. Just recently... Uh, my family, we went on a short trip to Taiwan. So the first day, right after the plane arrived, we, we took a, a, a car to Yangming San to enjoy the, the beautiful mountains. It was a bit drizzling there. And uh, as we were walking there, there was this stall right in the middle of the, of, of the Yangming San selling this famous candy, this red um, sugary thing with all kinds of shapes and sizes. I bought two for my kids. And as they took it, I told my, my, one, of my, one of my kids, don't run. Don't climb the, the rocks because if you do it, you're going to fall, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to break your candy. I prophesied that and it happened. <laughs> but as he came out in tears with pain and his eyes were wet, coming to me, I couldn't help but show compassion to him. And I just hold his hand and we headed back towards the old man that was selling us the candy. But what was more amazing was this. As we were walking there, that old man, the veteran who made the candy, he looked out and I haven't seen anything. He says, the road must be slippery, isn't it? Uh, don't cry. I'm sure your daddy's going to buy you a new one. <laughs> well, my prophecy was great. His prophecy was even greater. <laughs> he could see that I could well be angry with my son. But when he comes to me, my compassion is not hidden from him. As we hear about all this judgment of Babylon, Isaiah 13 comes to the end that the judgment will come, but Isaiah 14 flips the coin and tells us this. I want you to look at Isaiah 14, and this is where we'll close. Isaiah 14, verse 1, it says this The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them into their own land. Now, while wickedness cannot escape the judgment of God. Yet there is a beautiful picture of compassion from God to those He promised 
to love, on Jacob, also known as Israel. God's compassion will be on them. He will not forget the people who trust Him. In fact, earlier in chapter 9, we are already told that God's people, they walk, we're walking in darkness, but they who walk in darkness will see a great light. God will send a child that will be born. This child, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We hear that all the time. In God's judgment of the world, God will not com- forget his compassion. In fact, he cannot forget his compassion because he has already sent that child to earth to bring light to people in darkness. Those who cannot see, those who are in darkness, he says, come to me that I may bear the burdens for you. God cannot forget his compassion because he cannot forget the child he sent because that is the promised son of David. That is his own son, the son of God. So even as God's judgment comes raining down on Babylon, God's compassion will be on those for his people. They will be hurt because they refuse to listen. They will lose plenty because they have sinned against God. But when they turn to God, God's compassion comes back to them. God has more than sufficient to bring them back to the promised land. To the land, not just with milk and honey. The land where God himself sits. The Son of God himself rules perfectly. That is the promise that is given, that is the rescue and compassion. God provides the midst of all of this. So God calls to his people, come out of Babylon, trust in me. The day will come where you will be with me. Now dear friends, human pride, our collective greatness, will not save us any more than he tried to at Babel, at Babylon and the past. Now on yesterday, Pastor Andrew was preaching at a wedding sermon and he used this and I thought it was so apt so I'm going to hijack from him. He said this, The war of death comes towards everyone. The war of death comes towards everyone. None of us who live by the spirit of this world of Babylon will be able to overcome as the war of death comes to us. Imagine you're tied to an escalator and right in front is a war and you have nowhere to run and you can't turn back. There's no escape from the war of death. But shall we say in Isaiah 13, that the crushing war of God's judgment is unavoidable as well. It has crashed Babylon. It has crashed Babel. It has crashed many in the past. It will come. Only those who recognize God as the sovereign king, as the ultimate king, who come and trust in Jesus who finds and seeks compassion from God, that on the day of the Lord, they will not crash right in to the judgment of God. Because right in front of him stood the Son of God who has taken that death. Now, dear friends, some people call Isaiah, as we close here, these passages between King Ahaz and King Hezekiah as the lessons in trust. And I pray as we begin today and weeks to come, that we will keep building our faith through our journey, Isaiah, not on vacuums, but on God's proclaimed word, God's fulfilled um, words, and God's promises that will come, that will build on faith, because if we do not stand in our faith, we will not stand at all. But if we stand in the sun, nothing 
will be able to crush us. Let us pray. Oh Father, we thank you as we come back to Isaiah after a break. It's not easy to get into difficult poetries and um, things that sound foreign to our current generations. But Father, we pray that you help us to see what has been relevant in Isaiah's time is relevant in our time. Because your judgment has yet to fail. He has fallen on Babel. He has fallen on Babylon the Great. He will fall on the Babylon of this world. But help us to be those who trust in you, to look to you and see that you are the king who will judge the world absolutely but you will provide salvation graciously if we come to your Son, Jesus. For your glory and on the day of the Lord, we pray that we are with Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bctc.sg.